Hello everyone, this is Andre, the co-founder of Twins Tours and Travel in Jerusalem in Israel, born into a Christian Maronite family, and I'm a licensed tour guide and an ordained minister of the gospel. I have been leading numerous groups throughout the Holy Land for almost 20 years. Also, I'm an author of several books, and you can find them in Amazon. And one of the first books I wrote called One Friday in Jerusalem speaks about my life story. So join me for a journey of 10 days to understand the heart and the mind of Jesus and to understand the Bible in a deeper way with more details through the Middle Eastern perspective. Please share this podcast with your friends and families and churches and connect with me if you have any questions. Day number six. We are in the bus approaching Tel Dan National Park. And the bus driver will stop by the square-shaped kiosk. This is the ticket's office. And I will go down to pay the tickets and collect some few brochures about Tel Dan and give it to the group to share. And then the first thing we will do when we arrive to Tel Dan is go directly to the toilets. <laughs> Remember, toilets is one of the most important pagan sites we have to visit. Minimum four to five times a day. I learned from my mistakes, so I make it possible. Minimum, minimum like five times a day. And all the group will be happy to take a toilet break. Then I will point for them the meeting place. And it's right outside of the toilets under the willow tree. Too much information, it's fine. So now we are starting the hike in the Dan National Reserve Park. And this is a major source of water to Israel. It is so impressive. And this is a great archaeological site. So first, what we will do, we will hike around uh, half an hour to the main altar at uh, Tel Dan, raised by... Uh, King Jeroboam and we're gonna do a teaching important teaching there and after that we're gonna continue hiking to see the Canaanite gate a gate was built from the time of Abraham and learn about it and then we're gonna go to the Israelite gate at Tel Dan and learn about the city gates and this is the plan that I like to tell the group to know what is expected next I would like to start by sharing some biblical history about this area and we know about a large number of families from the Israelite tribe of Dan during the 12th century. They were relocated from the area of the Shefilah nearby the Mediterranean Sea. And remember the story after Joshua entered the Promised Land through the Jordan River, he started to conquer a city by city like Jericho, Ai, Gilgal, then all over the land. And then he allotted for the 12 tribes locations and we know about the 12 tribes Naphtali in the north Asher also the tribe of Zebulun nearby Nazareth Issachar also Galilee in the area of Galilee and then we have the tribe of Dan nearby the Mediterranean Sea in the lowland and then we have the other tribes Manasseh and we have also Reuben, Gad and all Simeons in the south, Judah in Jerusalem. Anyway, so the tribe of Dan was allotted to an area nearby the Mediterranean Sea. But they did not like that location. And they wanted to change their destiny. And we're going to learn 
what happens to you if you make your own destiny by your own hands to find a better place to live and go far away from God. And this is what the tribe of Dan has done. The Bible tells us how 600 families of the tribe of Dan looked for a substitute for the location of the center of Israel. They sent five spies to the Canaanite city named Laish. And this story is written in Judges chapter 18 verses 1 and 2. I will read it to you. The Danites settled in Laish. In those days Israel had no king. And in those days the tribe of the Dan was seeking a place of their own where they might settle, because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Dan tribe sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Ishtaol. By the way, Zorah and Ishtaol, we know where is this, in the locations of the Mediterranean Sea, and that's also a point that Zorah and Ishtaol uh, is the area of Samson and Delilah, so we know exactly the location, nearby Beit Shemesh, if you know it today. And they sent them to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all the tribe of Dan. They told them, go explore the land. So they entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. The spies returned and praised the fertile area. Judges 18, 9. We have seen the land, and behold, it's very good. And look what happened later. They captured the city in Judges 18, 27. And they came unto Laish. Laish is the name of the Canaanite city. Unto a people that were at quiet and secure. And they smote them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And then after they conquered it, the Israelites renamed the city from the name Laish to Dan. Look what is written in Joshua 19.47. And the course of the children of Dan went out too little for them. Therefore the children of Dan went up to fight against Laish and took it, and smote it with the edge of the sword, and possessed it, and dwelt therein, and called Laish Dan, after the name of Dan their father. Now all the group are sitting on ancient steps and looking towards the high place. And they are overlooking the valley with the views of Mount Hermon. Now, imagine you're sitting there and looking in front at the altar. And the area is around 45 meters by 60 meters of a high place. And here the excavation like unearthed and reconstructed the remains of a unique Israelite ritual place. And this altar... And this high place, and not only a high place, an altar, it's like most archaeologists believe that is a temple that was in use since the times of King Jeroboam, son of Nabat. We're talking about 930 before Christ. And it was rebuilt by Jeroboam, son of Joash, in the 8th century before Christ. And reused during the Hellenistic period in the 3rd century BC until the end of the Roman time. And imagine with me a reconstruction of an altar. And the left side, there is a big metal frame. And behind them are the houses of the high priest behind the altar. 
and imagine a large raised platform, a bima that stood here. It's like 18 meters by 18 meters and to the right of this oak tree. And imagine also 8 meter staircase leading up to the altar. This is a high place. And high places in the Bible consisted of platforms with various cult objects and an altar that provided a place for the sacrificial offerings in places other than Jerusalem. The use of high places to worship foreign gods is universally condemned in the Bible. Because once the temple is built, people should worship the Lord in the temple. And look what is written in Deuteronomy chapter 12, 1 to 7. The one place of worship. Verse 12. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you to possess. As long as you live in the land, destroy completely all the places on the high mountains on the hills and under every spreading tree, where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. Verse 4. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give, and your free will offerings. And the firstborn of your herd and flocks, there in the presence of the Lord your God, and your families shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hands to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. And we know during the reign of King Hezekiah, he successfully removes all the high places dedicated for different gods. But Jeroboam did not do that. Let me read for you what King Hezekiah has successfully done. Second Kings 18.4. He removed the high place, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to the time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. So the people might worship at the temple in Jerusalem. So when the temple stood up, there should not be any other worship areas or any any sacrifices done like golden calf or anything. It was not allowed. Let me read for you also 2 Kings 18, 22. I'm reading all this scripture to lay for you the background, okay, the stage. 2 Kings 18, 22. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem. And later we know Manasseh has rebuilt the high places, but it wasn't until King Josiah that there was a systematic removal of high places. One last verse to read, 2 Kings 23. And again read verse 1. The king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah. 
the inhabitants of Jerusalem, their priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearings all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. Verse 3, the king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, status and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Verse 4, the king ordered Chilikiah, the high priest, the priest next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the stray hosts. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley and took the ashes. Anyway, you can read all this chapter, but this is, shows us how King Hezekiah just preserved the word of God and he didn't do other altars than the one in Jerusalem, and he preserved the name of God. But let me get you back earlier to the story. In 1 Kings 11, 34 to 39, God is furious with Solomon for his lack of faithfulness, and he tells Jeroboam that he will give him a dynasty as a great king, and as David's, like, dynasty and kingdom, if he obeys him. And look what is written, 11, 34. To 39 first kings but i will not take the whole kingdom out of solomon's hand i have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of david my servant whom i chose and who obeyed my commandments and decrees i will take the kingdom from his son's hands and give you the ten tribes i will give one tribe to his son so that david that david my servant may always have a lamp before me in jerusalem the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. This for Jeroboam. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. But what happened, Jeroboam refuses to obey God and thinks he knows better how to establish a kingdom. So the Bible describes the acts of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, erecting a golden calf and building an altar in Dan and the purpose of this ritual place to serve as an alternative worship site from Jerusalem. So we know that this is totally wrong. This is not obedient to God. And all of this happened after King Solomon died and the kingdom was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the kingdom in the north is with Jeroboam, and he built his own altars in Dan and Bethel and the kingdom of Jerusalem or Judah in the south. And was, that was the start of the civil war between Judah and Israel. And let me read for you 1 Kings 12, 25 to 31. The golden calves at Bethel and Dan. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam 
thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will gain they will again give their alliance to their Lord. Robam, king of Judah, they will kill me and return to King Robam. You see, Jeroboam was afraid he will lose control and people will worship in the real place in Jerusalem and they will be really dedicated to King Rehoboam. So Jeroboam was scared. Look at verse 28. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calls. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. So as we read, where are the two golden cows located? One in Dan in the north and one at Bethel. El, Bethel, Bethel in the south. And this is the borders of the northern kingdom. Why did Jeroboam pick these two sites? We know that Dan is the opposite direction of Jerusalem. And Bethel is a stop only before Jerusalem. Bethel is only 10 miles north of Jerusalem. And this is how Jeroboam caused Israel to sin. So Jeroboam is trying to give the people something easier, an option than the altar of Jerusalem. He is pleasing his people. So it's a wrong direction. It's like deceiving in a way. You can either go to Dan, wrong direction, away from Jerusalem, or Bethel, which is the right direction but not in Jerusalem. Jeroboam, for the people, he is imitating Jerusalem, the real Jerusalem. He's trying to make another option or another easier copy of reality. And he's hoping to get the pilgrims to stop at Bethel and not to travel the few more miles to Jerusalem. He's making it more convenient. More convenient to people, easier to people. And he is wanting to get them opposite direction, far away from Jerusalem, to worship in Dan. So it's so deceiving and so tricky. And this is what sometimes Satan do. It's another trick of Satan to set up camp just of where God wants us to be. Or send us to an opposite direction, away from God. It's like where it started, because the tribe of Dan allotted the area of the lowland, the Shefilah, and that's what God gave them. That was not convenient for them. They don't want to suffer. They don't want to struggle. And they chose to have a nice life in Dan. So we read the story. They smothered the Canaanites there, and the land was so fertile. It's more convenient for them. It's not about conveniency. And look, Jeroboam, who reigned over Israel, worried that when his people traveled to Jerusalem temple, they would transfer alliance to Judah, King Rehoboam. He did not want to do that. Because if people go to worship in Jerusalem, he will lose his authority and power. 
And this is why he set two altars, one in Dan and one in Bethel. He wanted to control the people. And the same thing like today. Churches. Pastors wanted to control the churches. And <laughs> they want just authority. They want just, they don't have the confidence. Exactly like Jeroboam. Because if people go to temple in Jerusalem, their hearts will change and he will lose control over them and power. And their hearts will change. It's all about the intentions of the heart. And look what Jeroboam done. He made a false place to worship and counterfeit bunch of priests, not from the tribe of Levite, to hold his loyalty. As I mentioned, Bethel is one day walk from Jerusalem. Anyone who live in Israel know that. And he wanted to stop people to walk up to Jerusalem, to the temple. That's a strategic move, thinking of him being smart to control the people. And it's like people speak about God and not for God and not as God. He just diverted, diverted reality and made it more convenient. Like today we say, what is more convenient to us? We do not need to drive one hour to church. We just watch it online. We are self-centered. Use technology far away from God. I'm not against technology, but it should not replace the church. And let me explain more. Let us go back to the Old Testament and read about the golden calf in Exodus 32 verses 1 to 8. It's a very similar story. The golden calf. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Verse 2. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the earrings and brought them to Aharon. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and represented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up and to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and I... And have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. The problem here also is a very similar problem to the days of Jeroboam, is impatience. They did not like how long it was taking for Moses to come down. It was inconvenient for them. They did not want to wait. And they start to take their earrings and make it to a calf by burning them. Earrings represent slavery in Egypt. They say they don't want other masters, only themselves. And notice that Aaron only asked for the earrings from the women and children. 
what is he trying to do? He is trying to hold this sin and minimize the damage of people by being convenient to them. Perhaps he can keep the men from sinning in this way. But verse 3 says that all people, men included, threw their earrings into the fire. Look what is written in Exodus 20.25. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it for if you use a tool on it. Tool. Notice that he fashions the idol with a tool. That is wrong. God said, do not use tools. You know what is tools? They compare to the words technology. Tools re represent human technology and human's ability to craft and create your own experience with God. This is why God doesn't want human tools used to shape his altar. And let me stretch you a little bit. Think about coronavirus. The world is trying to control people by using technology tools to control the world. This is satanic. In New World Order, it is a trick that hopefully believers will not submit to it. After the coronavirus finish, you're going to see the change in the world. But we have to go back to churches. We have to worship in the right locations and right places. And it's not about controlling people and empires and diverting them from God without they even seeing it. Many believers will fall in that trap. What is more convenient is to do. It's like similar what uh, Jeroboam have done. More convenient to people. It's similar what Aaron wanted to do. What is more convenient to people? It's like the same having to worship in Dan or Bethel and not in real Jerusalem. Now look at Exodus 32, 5 and 6. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up in, to indulge in revelry. People pleasing. What has Aaron done? He is creating a festival that God has not created. He is trying to save what these people are doing because he claims that this is a festival to Yahweh. He created this festival. Whereas they say that these are the gods who brought them up of Egypt. They are breaking the first commandment. I am the Lord thy God. You shall not have any strange gods before me. He is breaking the first commandment because he has made the people into an idol in his desire to please them. Notice that the result is the people to go wild. And this is the same thing. We will read later and learn about Jeroboam. He chose the festival. He made another festival, a different even time of the month. And that's to please the people. And what happens as a result? There is no faith. The faith will be lost. Notice also that he builds the altar in front of the golden calf. This is the normal position for the altar so that the God could see the sacrifice. Where does Exodus say the altar burnt offerings is supposed to go? Outside the Holy of Holies, beyond the curtain, not in other places. So this was so that people of Israel would have to exercise their faith that God would see their sacrifice. Again, Aaron is attempting to remove the need for faith. Look what is God's response. He will give them what they want. They want to be their own masters. 
then he will send them to the promised land without his presence, without the anointing of the Holy Spirit. This is what we will do in the flesh. So, in Exodus 32, humans are waiting to control their experience of God and religion. Their impatience, their desires for no master but themselves, their lack of faith, and desire to mold and create their own thing in affront to God. And Aaron gets dragged into their sin, even as he is trying to rescue them. And that's what happens in churches today. The pastor tried to please the people and what is convenient and that's serving them in the flesh. And look what is written in 1 Kings 12, verse 31, 32, 33. The same thing what Jeroboam had done. He built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the cows he made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the fifteenth day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. He made a festival, a different period of a month. What festival was it? The Feast of Tabernacle. And look what God instituted, the festival feast of Tabernacles on the fifth day of the seventh month. But Jeroboam moves his festival to the 15th day of the eighth of the month. Why he moved it later? More convenient. Crops ripened later for people in the north. So he... This made the Feast of Tabernacles more convenient for people. So what is Jeroboam doing? The same thing as Aharon. Aharon also moved the festival. He's trying to please the people to hold their alliance. He has invented something that looks like what God wants, but it's not built on God being God. Not on solid foundation. Imitation. Just to please people. So what was the result of what Jeroboam did? When we only try to please people, that is very dangerous. If there is a tendency to go far away from God and far away from the anointing and the Holy Spirit. Look what was the result of what Jeroboam did. 2 Kings 10, 29-32. However, he did not turn away from the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, which he had caused Israel to commit the worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. I will jump to verse 32. In those days, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. Hazael empowered the Israelites throughout their territory. The key verse here, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. Look about the intentions of Jeroboam. Instead of Israel being from Dan to Beersheba, southern Judah, down all the way, as it had always been and as, had, as God has intended, he was trying to shrink it from Dan to Bethel, just to control and feel secured. And look what happened as a consequences. Israel began to shrink. 
This is the result of cutting God out of our lives. Trying for us to be our masters. Trying to fit God into our schedules instead of putting God on top of our schedule. The more we minimize God's presence and the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we start to depend on ourselves and our gifts, and it's all about me, and the more we want to do it our own way, like Jeroboam and Aaron, the more our lives and the influence of the Holy Spirit will begin to shrink. And this is clearly what Satan wants to do. He set up rival systems of religions against what God is doing. He wants people to go into the opposite direction. Like what's happening with the coronavirus nowadays. And when all the coronavirus will end, just remember this. Don't do your own thing. In the West, like sport is God. People are workaholic. It's like God. Uh, full of depression, lonely, loneliness. And just I hope that coronavirus is a wake-up call for people to come back and not to depend on themselves. For them to know there is something higher, there is something bigger. It's all about the community. It's all about God. And when you start to go back to churches and during Sunday services, uh, don't just look for what you can get out of the church rather than submitting to God. If you look what you want only for yourself, it will result in shrinking your spiritual life and the Holy Spirit. And let me expand more also. Like, it's all about the intentions of the heart. And sometimes pastors fall in the same mistake. Like Aharon and like Jeroboam, using tools like on the altar, like the tools is the technology. Technology should not replace the church. We should not submit to it in the future. We need to be present in our churches. We do not replace technology for God. Do not be controlled by machines. We need to have the anointing. We need to have the community. We need to be present with the community at the house of God, the church. Let me summarize the difference between what Jeroboam did and what happened in Exodus 32. In Exodus, Moses acted. He moved quickly to put an end to their idolatry and commands the Levites to cleanse the camp by slaying 3,000 offenders who had bowed down to the golden calf. Look what's his difference. Moses was alert. He did not allow sin to continue. But Jeroboam never repented. He allowed sin among his people and continued to worship in the golden calves from Dan and Bethel. He liked what he was doing, living under sin. And let me get like more deeper. The issue is not so much the sin as it is the repentance that follows the sin. Jeroboam did not repent at all. Many times people like to live in sin, even coming to churches. That do not change their lives. They like sin. They like to be like living all the time under this curse. And they do not like to repent. And look what happens if they don't repent. And look what happened to the house of Jeroboam and the northern kingdom when they lived in sin. 
In year 721 BCE, the Assyrian army captured the Israelite capital, Samaria, and carried away the citizens of the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. From Bethel to Dan was destroyed completely. But what happened? The kingdom of the south, Judah, survived because they were worshipping at the real place in Jerusalem. They did not make any other altars. So they survived. The Syrians, when they came to invade them, they were not able to conquer Jerusalem. And what happened after that? Judah, Jerusalem, the southern kingdom was also extended their authority northward into areas previously controlled by the Israelite kingdom and they helped them. And the latter part of the reign of King Ahaz and King Hezekiah were periods of stability during which Judah was able to consolidate both politically and economically. When you are with God, whatever is the circumstances, you are always protected. So remember that. Repent. There is time. And put God first in your life and don't go worshiping and other places what's convenient to you on your laptop or in Zoom to worship and not to go to church. I encourage you go to the services when things get very safe. Go back to the churches and do not only use technology. Do not only use just I don't want to go to the church. It's not convenient to the today many believers are falling in this trap i encourage you when things get safe please you have to go back to the churches to the real place of worship i hope you enjoyed this teaching now what i will do i will give the group a 15 minute break to go around the altar and take some pictures of the area and then after that we will head to see the canaanite gate now we are at the Canaanite gate. We all the group is standing and facing the facade of this gate, which have another name, Abraham Gate. You have to understand this is where Dan started from the Neolithic period. Neolithic period is like 9000 years BC. And there was a city even in the early Bronze Age. And the city expanded and transformed into a large Canaanite city in the 18th century. And the ancient city was named Leshem or Laish, what the Bible call it. And it covers a large area. And this is what I read earlier and it's mentioned in Judges chapter 18. Because of the abundance sources of water, a strategic location on one of the most important roads, the Via Maris, the road of the sea, and the fertility of the area were the reasons why the Canaanite city was established and was huge. The Canaanite city was around 50 acres. It's huge. And it was heavily fortified by high walls. The walls reached 10 and 15 meters high. And surrounding the whole city from all directions. And it was one of the largest ancient archaeological sites in the northern part of Israel. And what we see is an 18th century BC Canaanite brick gate, seven meters high, which was all unearthed by the archaeologists in 1967. 
Do you see a stepped path approaches the gate from the east? And you can see that the gate is built of three arches, which was constructed from sun-baked bricks. You can see now the outer arch is around 2.4 meters wide. It's the main entrance. And this arch-shaped lentil is one of the earliest complete standing arches found in the world. And the archway is the earliest intact structure in the world. Just think about it. This is the earliest arched gate made of mud bricks in the world. And as you see, it's covered by modern arch construction like metal for protection from the sun and heat during the summertime and protection from the rain during winter. And what is, why this gate is important? Because it's the same time from Abraham, 18th century BCE. And this gate where Abraham passed during his pursuit against the northern kings. Genesis 14, 14. And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his drained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. So I give the group 10 minutes to take a group picture there, and then we continue to the Israelite gate. It's not far. It's like another five minutes hike. All the group is sitting down at the Israelite gate. And this gate dated from Ahab, 9th century, before Christ. And it was reconstructed by the archaeologist. And we see a large paved open space, like around 400 meters square. The archaeologist found an important inscription about the house of David. Anyway, the main gate was composed of three pairs of beams surrounding a paved road that enters the city. This design created four guard rooms, which is typical of Iron Age gates. You know, Iron Age, King Solomon, David, Ahab, 10th century, 9th century BC. And the Israelite gate is based on another outer gate, which is located on the left of the wall in the center. It winds all the way to the left, passing through another inner gate, moving between two pairs of chambers on both sides. And then after that, it continues inside the city. Now we see opposite to the main gate is an opening of a base of a canopy. It's like an elevated area, which is based on flower-shaped stones with two grooves that hold the poles. The raised platform may have been the seating of the king. Look what is written in 2 Kings 23.8. Then the king arose and sat in the gate. So this is a special seating where the king make decisions. So let's learn about what is the importance of the city gate in the Bible. You have to understand that the city gate was a central location for the social activity important business transactions were made, courts were convened, and public announcements were often heard at the city gate. It's like the community hall where everyone meets. So we can say that the city gate was an important cultural hub of society, and the Bible speaks a lot about it. And I'm going to read for you some verses from the Old Testament and the New Testament about the city gates. Because it's very important to understand the role of the city gate. Look what is written in Proverbs 1.21 says, 
The creature in the chief place of conquer course, in the openings of the gates, in the city she uttered her words. In order to speak wisdom to the masses, words were spoken loudly at the city gate. And the Bible first discusses the city gate in Genesis 19.1. At the gate of Sodom, Lot, Abraham's nephew, greeted the angelic visitors to the city. Also in Ruth chapter 4, 1 to 11, you can read it later, but Boaz officially claimed the position of the kingsman redeemer by meeting with the city elders at the gates of Bethlehem. It was at the city gate that the legal matter concerning his marriage to Ruth was resolved. And likewise in Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21. The Bible speaks of the parents of a rebellious son who were told to bring the boy to the city gate, where the elders of the city would examine the evidence and pass judgment on him, and he will be judged by the king. Also in 1 Samuel 4.18 and 2 Samuel 18.1-5, and uh, let me get you, there's so much references about the city gates, but I'd like to get you to the New Testament, Matthew 16.18. Jesus declared that, And I say also unto thee, that show art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And by the way, this is our next stop, which we're going to learn and talk about it in details about the city gates and the gates of hell. Let me summarize. In the Bible, the city gate represents a place of great significance. It was a place where kings gave decrees to the people. Armies were commanded for war. And important governmental and social business transactions took place at the city gate. It's the essence. It's like the town square in the biblical times. I mentioned earlier about the inscription of the house of David that was found outside the city gate in the large platform area. And actually, it was found as fragments of a basalt stone with Aramaic letters coming out of it, dated to the 9th century BC. And this unique tablet or unique stela includes a reference to the house of David with a parallel description in the Bible in 2 Kings chapter 9 of the murders of King Joram and Ahaziah. Uh, please read it by yourself. I will not read it. It's a long chapter. But anyway, an Aramean king, most likely Hazael of Damascus, occupied the Israelite city of Dan. And we are talking about around 840s BC. And after which he evidently erected this inscription in a public place to indicate his reign over the city. And after his hold on the city ended, the Israelites seemed to have torn down the inscription, broken it up, and reused it fragments in the construction of a new outer gate. And why is this inscription so much important in history? Because in the text, the Aramean king claims to have killed the kings of both Jorabam and Judah, Ahaziah, in the course of his southern conquest. But in the Hebrew Bible account, it is Jehu who kills the two kings in a bloody coup and seizes the throne of Israel for himself. So we have a strange, complicated set of parallel texts in which each names a different murderer. And more importantly, perhaps, it's the fact that the Aramean king refers to the kingdom of Judah by its dynasty name. That's what's important. 
and a name frequently used in the Hebrew Bible, the House of David. You have to understand, this is the only evidence in history we found today in archaeology of the name of the dynasty of the House of David. So that it proves for all archaeologists and for all the world that the House of David existed in the Bible and it's real. And this was found only after the excavations in 1967 because there was Syria before that. Let me give you some modern history about this place. The first time that this area was examined is by the PEF, Palestine Exploration Fund, a survey. It took place between 1866 and 1877 by Wilson and Kitchener. They correctly identified it as a site of Dan based on Josephus and other writing. And most of the excavations were done after 1967 by Professor Aharon Biran. You have to understand that all this area was like a, an army base, a post for Syria. And it was like a huge covered bunker because it's a tell, it's like artificial mountain. So that was very convenient to have a bunker there. So the Israelites had the writings of the Palestine exploration found and they knew almost where is the location. So they took away the bunker and they found the complete city of Dan. They done excavations from 1968 to 1972 years of excavations, bringing back history alive. So this is a very nice uh, nature reserve and is open to the public with various trails and interest. And is one of the most fascinating sites in the area. And it combines both nature, attractions, a lot of fresh springs, water, streams, plantation historic sites and with a lot of unique findings and by the way when the group just do the hiking they get so amazed of how beautiful is the hike and they get so much content and they never imagined that it's so beautiful like this before anyway we will head from the city gate the israelite city gate and pass through an iron door that leads us to an exit and to the parking and this is where the bus will be waiting for us so I would be the first one and I go so quick because there's always a farmer, a Druze farmer, just having a stand and he's selling the apples of the Golan Heights. So I go and buy from him for all the group apples to try. It will be so delicious because the apples of the Golan Heights are the best in the world. And I pass all the apples for the group. Of course, I'll be washing them first. They'll see me washing the apples and I'll pass it to all the group. They will love it so much. And there's always one or two in the bus will tease me and tell me, Andre, this is great apples. I want more. Of course, I will have more apples in my pack for myself, but I will pass them also around to the people. And I tell them because you asked, you get. And this will be a nice, uh, positive atmosphere. And now we are heading to Caesarea Philippi, or what we are known by Panias, and this will be our next stop. Panias is on the borders between Israel and Lebanon, and we will be looking at some Lebanese villages on our drive. And there's a famous Lebanese village called Rajar. And Rajar is an Alawite Arab village on the Hasbani River, on the borders, as I said, between Lebanon and Israel. And we can see it clearly from the bus during driving. And 
The population is not more than 3,000 people there. In 1982, when Israel occupied southern Lebanon, and even they reached all the way to Beirut, and the village like became under the control of Israel. And when Israel pulled out of southern Lebanon in 2000, the, the residents in the northern Rajar suddenly found themselves living in Lebanon and not Israel because Israel had divided the village into two parts. One became Israel and the other part became Lebanon. And their relatives, the neighbors who previously lived just across the street, now live in separate country, an enemy state. And the division of the village on behalf in Israel, the other in Lebanon, lasted until 2006 when Israel invaded northern Gajar during the Second Lebanese War. Anyway, it's complicated history, but I like to mention this village. And earlier in November 2005, Hezbollah launched an assault on the village, firing mortars and Katyusha's rockets on IDF positions and civilian houses. And nine months later, an all-out war erupted, triggered by a cross-border kidnapping of two Israeli soldiers not far from Gajar. And the Second Lebanon War resulted in the death of over 1,400 Lebanese and 163 Israelites, and Israel almost destroyed one-third of Lebanon. Now, the United Nations are protecting the borders of this uh, village, and a few years ago, we used to go and visit uh, this village and learn about and talk with the people about their struggles and because of the wars. But while uh, the people in Rajar and the residents have endured so much wars, and terrorism, their concern is the future of the village. The UN and Beirut insist that the northern half of the village will be given back to Lebanon, despite the fact that the blue line border runs directly through the center of the village. In 2010, the Israelite cabinet came close to an agreement to withdraw, but the matter remains to be not settled till today and the residents are opposed to this division. Anyway, it's so much complicated, but uh, it's important because it's unique in history. Again, if you are confused, you're in the right place. This is so much confusing. Even for local people, it's confusing because of so much wars and so much history that took place in this part of the world, the Golan Heights.